and welcome to Horrorsperia. My name is May, and today we have a very special episode with an amazing guest. Uh, please, everyone, welcome Touche Kutlu. Hi, Touche. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great as well. I mean, uh, as great as I can be in this uh, pandemic times, of course. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but it's also very related to my research, you know, death yeah. and, you know, mourning and grief <laughs> all around us. <laughs> so I am, as a researcher, as a researcher, it gives me a lot of stuff to think about. But, but as a normal human being, I am, of course, uh, very sad about what's going on in the world. Oh, you were so funny. Um, I regret that we haven't done this sooner. I needed to laugh. <laughs> um, all right, Tushe. Well, uh, you know, we met just, you know, doing conferences. I think we were at the same conference. I was very impressed yeah. by your work. And, um, and so we've become friends and you have your thesis, which is so beautiful and Thank important. You. And so I would prefer if you would go ahead and explain, you know, not only how you like to characterize your work, but also tell us a bit more about your thesis, please. I did my undergrad at Ankara University, Radio Television and Film, and I did a master's degree at Ankara University and another master's degree at UCL, University College London in film studies. And now I'm doing my PhD at Ankara University Cinema uh, again. And I'm a research and uh, teaching assistant at the same university. So uh, academia is the way to go for me, obviously. Uh, but before that, I worked uh, briefly for a, a public uh, television company like BBC, oh. but in Turkish. Uh, I, my job was to read scripts and I read a lot of scripts. Some of them were good, but some of them were... <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> one thing you have to know about me that I'm obsessed with horror films and I have been obsessed with horror films like forever like maybe uh, five years old or something like that where I watched um, uh, Child's Play at night without my parents knowing of course I was like mm, like you watch this oh there's a baby but then I was like uh, shocked <laughs> horrified through the whole film uh, but that didn't uh, that didn't affect the fact that I was now obsessed with horror films and I, I wanted to watch as as much as possible as many as possible and uh, so in 2010, I lost my grandfather. It kind of uh, opened up a hole in my life and I started to think more about dying and grief. And he was sick for, for like three or four years. And so I started to think about dying, death, grief. What does it mean? Why are we here? And why do we leave? And all these like big, big questions. And um, after coming to you know university and especially at UCL, I said like you have two obsessions. One is horror. One is death. Like why <laughs> don't you combine this yeah. and make a work that may be helpful to people? Because while researching, I saw that a lot of people online 
treat their mental health with horror films. And <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that, that's a very interesting thing because uh, you would, you would exp- for example, I read, uh, like, I read the research that people with uh, anxiety disorders uh, actually get help from horror films from watching horror films wow. and that that sparked something in me like mental health and horror are so related and you would expect you know a person with anxiety to feel fearful uh, while watching horror films right that you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, automatically assume that they would be at ease and like happy that people are getting killed <laughs> but that's uh, that's something like Elizabeth Bronfen calls this death uh, by proxy and that by proxy is, I think, very important because, like, you experience death at a safe distance through horror films. Yeah. And that kind of um, prepares us for what is to come in real life as well. And that, I think, reduces anxiety in a person, anxiety about, you know, death and what's to come after death. And uh, so I started researching grief. I read a lot of work on you know psychology and psychiatry. I felt like I was a psychiatrist student at one point. Like so I, I researched so much of that stuff. And uh, at at last, I decided that Elizabeth Kubler Ross's uh, much criticized work on uh, five stages of grief was the perfect, uh, you know, perfect structure for my thesis. So. My chapter one is Denial, and it talks about Midsommar, a film that I really love and a film that I think is uh, really important regarding grief studies. And on chapter two, Anger, we talk about Hereditary, another important film from Ariasta. Uh, I think Ariasta has something. I don't know. I, I, I'm really looking forward to the third film because I'm pretty sure that one is also, uh, that one will also have something to do with, you know, death and dying and mourning uh, because I think it's, is kind of like he is obsessed as I am. So uh, let's see about that. And third chapter, bargaining is about pet cemetery, about the latest one, 2019 uh, adaptation of Stephen King's novel. And uh, the reason I chose that over the original is because now Ellie is the one that died. Right. And uh, that is very important because Gage in the original film, Gage dies. Yeah. Gage is a baby. I mean, you, he just, you know, murders some people. You, you don't get any kind of like, um, uh, you, don't, you don't get guilt from Louise's part because Ellie uh, in this version talks talks a lot of a lot about death uh, after she died she's like why don't you tell mother and like hmm am i dead like because questions because she's older and i think that's important uh, this uh, research and then on chapter four uh, we look at Susan Hill's uh, adaptation the woman in black uh, which is i think a, a recent piece on depression uh arthur kipps is clearly depressed over his uh wife's demise and uh finally we come to acceptance uh which is chapter five 
and we look at, of course, the Babadook, because I think the Babadook uh, shows all the stages of grief uh, that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about with David Kessler, and and the film is uh, the Babadook, the monster, is grief personified. So it's really important uh, that 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 film. I think that film was the film that pushed me to do this research oh. because uh, yeah because I was watching that film a friend recommended it to me and I was watching this film and I was like this is a horror story but also this is a story about love life loss yeah. grief like everything basically everything is in this film and motherly love you know, we, we think that motherly love is unconditional, but the film actually tells us that that may not actually be true. And uh, these are all important uh, things that fil this film brings to the table. So it had to be in the research. Um, but yeah, overall, uh, this research is about grief and mourning and death and horror films, which I think that they are all related somehow. Well, thank you for breaking that down. You know, I think that that's really helpful. And it also, it, it's so, um, it, it's very paralleled to the uh, framework that you use, the Kubler-Ross framework that you use. Um, so I think I would like to get into each chapter and each film with you, especially how you read it. Um, but before mm -hmm. I do that, uh, I could, like, there are some in your list, they were like the Babadook seemed really obvious to me, Midsummer Hereditary. And I have no doubt that choosing films for this thesis was probably difficult. So, do you mind uh, explaining like why these films are like, were there any films that you left out that you would have liked to talk about? Can you talk a little bit about the narrowing down and selection process? Of course. I mean, uh, I think I watched, uh, I'm also I stating that in the thesis as well. Uh, I watched hundreds of horror films, hundreds. I mean, you can't, uh, I can't even remember some of them, like a lot of films, because uh, I also have a chapter like excursion called Horror's History with Grief which is very important because I talk about Gothic elements and how Gothic novel and, you know, grief and horror is related. They are all related somehow. And, uh, like, for example, slashers. Slashers could have been another chapter if this wasn't, you know, uh, like I, if I hadn't structured it according to Kubler-Ross's theory, I think slashers would have have would have had their own chapter because uh, everyone assumes that slashers are, you know, guilt-free, grief-free, like people die, no one cares. And that is not true. That is not true at all. And I talk about that because while doing the research, I uh, looked at Scream and Final Destination and Nightmare on Elm Street. I watched all of them. I watched all of the classics. And according, like uh, on top of the classics, I watched uh, films about grief, such as Lake Mungo, which is fantastic film about grief and uh, a lot of other films that uh, you know I had to left out but I I think the most important one for me was Lake Mungo because I felt really 
sad that that I had to leave it out because I didn't have a place for it. And, you know, uh, dissertation rules, you know, the dissertations rule, you can't go over uh, 12,000 uh, words. So um, it was uh, kind of, I think, I mean, I would have exp I would have talked more about Don't Look Now, for example, which is the, when you talk about, to think about grief and horror, Don't Look Now, Nicholas Rogue's film, is one of the films that they immediately comes to your mind because there's, you know, survivor's guilt, there's guilt over, you know, the children, but there's, there's a uh, death of a child in the film, just like Hereditary. And uh, that's, um, it's really important work. And I would also include Scream. Of course, I would include uh, Final Destination because the entire franchise is about hate and how you cannot escape death. So it's really important for grief studies. And uh, I think Final Destination is one of the, one of the very few films, horror films, where, you know, a lot of the scenes take place during funerals yeah <laughs> <laughs> which is very which is very interesting because you know in horror films you don't usually see in slashers you don't see the you know big funeral scene people crying and yeah. you know painting and all that but final destination breaks that rule and shows lengthy funerals and people you know blaming one another it's really uh, fascinating that this slasher talks so much about grief and how we cannot cope with it if, if we cannot cope with it we cannot go on of course i had to leave them out but the ones that i chose if you ask me how did you choose them? For me, the, of course, the one that <laughs> set the fire was the Babadook. And I was very pretty sure that it had to be acceptance because, well, the ending. I mean, I don't want to spoil right. anything for anyone who still <laughs> who is yet to see the Babadook. But uh, I have to do spoiler alert. If you haven't seen the Babadook, now close your ears. Uh, but the ending, you see that they that the Babadook is like small and you know helpless and in the basement, and Amelia goes to feed it. I mean, that is very symbolic, very very symbolic. I mean, why would you? Why would you? Um, if it wasn't grief, why would you? In the name of God, why would you feed a monster living in your basement? Uh, because this shows us that it will never go away. Grief will never go away. And it will just get smaller. It will just get manageable. But one thing, you know, sometimes uh, it happens. I mean, we all, we've all lost loved ones. I lost my grandmother one month ago to COVID, for example. And yeah, I mean... A lot of people died and she had a long life. So I'm happy about that, that she had a brilliant life. So, um, but, you know, sometimes I think about a film and she comes to my mind. And of course, grief doesn't go away. I mean, you can manage it quite well, but uh, there will come a point where it will remind you that your loved one will never come back again, never. And uh, when Amelia comes back from the basement, Sam asks, like, uh, it's getting much better, mom. She, he says, what is getting better? Grief is getting better. 
and Amelia is getting better at hiding, not hiding, but managing it. Uh, and that was that was like that was my acceptance. I I knew that. But then I started watching the films, and it was like 200 films, maybe. And it was a long period. Uh, I watched a lot of them. But I decided that Nisoma was denial because definitely denies the death of her parents for quite a while. Uh, for quite a while. She, she goes to Sweden after her entire family dies. I mean, if that's not denial, what is denial? <laughs> and um, it, it, was, it became pretty clear to me that this was about denial. And, then, and there are a lot of instances, for example, Pere, uh, the exchange student from Harga, wants to talk to her about uh, her loss but she's like no 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 like she just <laughs> runs away that's that's denial 101 I mean she just runs away and doesn't want to talk about it but that's her psyche's reaction it's like kind of like a, a mechanism to like protect herself because it is too much sometimes grief is too much and there is suicide and there is murder in her case and that these are unacceptable kind of deaths because there are deaths that are acceptable, such as a death of a child, murder, you know, violent deaths. These are kind of unacceptable deaths that complicate the mourning process. And Danny has all of those. In chapter two, I researched a lot. And I then came to the conclusion, I was watching the monologue with Tony Collette's beautiful monologue in the dinner scene with the son. Yeah. And she, Annie, her name is Annie, she just goes ballistic. Yeah. She goes ballistic. She's so furious. She's so angry. She's like, her face is red with anger. And I'm like, yes, I found my anger. This is, this is the film that I will talk about. And uh, depression was quite easy, I think, uh, because I watched uh, the play two times, one in Turkish and one in English, I think, for London, The Woman in Black. When I was watching all, uh, the, the film, of course, I watched the film as well. I watched the sequel as well. The sequel is not that good, but I think the first one is, uh, I would uh, say that is a good film. Uh, it has some uh, really... Uh, interesting scenes, dramatic yeah. sequences, and uh, it starts with uh, Arthur Kipps having a kind of dream, and uh, for for depressed people, especially like because depression in grief is different from depression as we know it. Uh, depression in grief is your body's way of trying to deal and trying to adjust and trying to move on. And uh, he has a he has a kind of like dream, and then you understand that this man doesn't want to wake up from the dream because her, his real life his real life is not the same without her. And I realized that oh no, we we are talking about grief and death and you know depression here because after she goes he goes to Cretan Gifford. Um, he meets Sam Daly uh, and, of course, uh, his wife, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is deeply depressed, clinically depressed at that point uh, because of the loss uh, of their child. And, uh, and then I decided that this is, this is the film 
that I have to talk about regarding depression. And bargaining was was one of the easiest, actually, because how many how many films, horror films, have bargaining with death in them? I mean, Pet Cemetery, obviously, yeah, obviously, is it's very obvious. It was a very obvious choice because um, the, this, there's this man of science, a doctor, right. mm-hmm. really, a doctor doesn't, and he doesn't even believe in afterlife. A door opens for him to the afterlife with the help of his neighbor, Jet. And it's so interesting that... This man of science, after the door opens to the afterlife, he just completely changes. And of course, when Ellie dies, he cannot accept that he she died. And of course, there is guilt because he could have prevented that from happening. Well, thank you for that. First off, I never thought of Final Destination as like a funeral drama. And now I'm going to think of it in that way. Um, (laughs) But uh, in that answer, you actually answered quite a few follow up questions I had. So I think maybe what I want to do is kind of go film by film now. So with Midsommar and with Denial, I think you laid out um, exactly the causality of it very well. But um, I guess my question then becomes, can we talk a little bit then about the journey to the end? Because the end is really unique. Um, it, like, like, uh, it seems like Danny goes through so many different traumas in Sweden in and of itself. And then there's this ending that is that can be read ambiguous, but, um, but I really appreciated your interpretation of it. So, yeah, can we talk a little bit about the journey of Midsummer and the journey of Danny? Of course, of course. I mean, I watched both versions of the film because there, there's a director's cut as well, which is a little bit longer. And uh, what do you think of the director's cut? Do you think it, it's helpful? I think it's helpful. It was helpful for me because, uh, I mean, my introduction begins with a quote from the uh, director's cut, and it wasn't in the original cut, so it helped a lot. It's just Christian asks Ula and Maya about about a ritual called Atestupan, and then he goes on to ask, do you have a typical period of mourning? And Ula just answers, yeah, we grieve and we celebrate. And this is really important regarding this film because celebration, they celebrate life, but they also celebrate death in Harga. But of course, in, the, in a Western point of view, it is very, very uh, uncomfortable and weird to say that they celebrate death. And... Um, and uh, as I said before, I think uh, it, I mentioned it in my thesis, but uh, I have to mention it now as well. Uh, the films that I chose were from Western, Anglo-American world. Yeah. I came from an Islamic background. So for me, grief is different. I mean, we grieve for quite a long time. Our rituals are much more, uh, you know, complex. Yeah. So it it gives the survivors a place to breathe and people don't leave you alone. For example, they call every day and they come by your house every day. They check on you 
And it's really, really, uh, it's an important thing to not leave the family alone for at least, you know, 40 days because uh, they may have, you know, problems. And I think that also uh, helps um, when, concerning suicides after deaths because a lot of a lot of suicides become uh, like happen after death of a loved one so uh, in Islamic tradition this is different and then you go to Asia you see you see another part of death you see reincarnation you see a lot of other stuff uh, that is different from Western tradition and then of course G Jewish tradition is different as well there's a, there's a thing called the vigil and uh, there's a movie called the vigil as well I completely uh, recommend that film that was great uh, film about death as well and uh, but Western tradition is different after the enlightenment I think uh, it became more reason rather than feelings. So Western traditions and rituals started to, you know, kind of go away. But in Harga, it's a pre-Christian pagan community, we assume. I mean, we don't get, a, you know, we are a pagan community, but we kind of get the idea that they, they are a pre-Christian pagan community. And um, when... Danny comes to Harga, I think, she's just lost. She's in denial. I mean, there's a scene, I think it's really important. They are taking, you know, drugs. And after the drugs, uh, she just goes, you know, into full panic attack mode, anxiety attack. And it is, it is because Mark calls them a family. And she's triggered by that word because she lost all of them. And she has no one. She has no support system. Her boyfriend is trash. And yes, she is. I mean, let's, let's accept that fact. He's trash. He sucks. And I mean, he didn't deserve that ending. But still, I mean, <laughs> maybe he did. I mean, he gaslights her quite a lot. Maybe he did. That's true. You may be true. And uh, then there's this journey into Sweden. And um, Pele is the only one who asks her how she's feeling. And, you know, if there's anything he can do to help. No one else asks her that question. I mean, that girl just lost her entire family and no one is asking how she is. And that is very problematic. And that is why also I say that she doesn't have a support system. She, she has people around her, yes, but she doesn't have a support system at all. And during her journey in Harga, she finds a family. And Ari Esther mentions this in an interview as well. Uh, she, he, he says that uh, he, she finds, Danny finds a kind of family in Harga. Uh, however, you know, um, dysfunctional, but it's still a family. I mean, like, yeah. like most families, like most families, it's, kind of, it's a bit dysfunctional, uh, maybe more than uh, normal families, but... Uh, Yes, yeah, so her journey in Harga uh, kind of starts from denial of the loss of her parents and her sister, 
But then she sees her sister in the mirror in the drug, you know, drug field scene. And it's it's just a blink and you miss it moment. You see a sister and she goes away. And then she comes face to face with the, you know, the, the ritual that everyone talks about where the two, uh, two old uh, couple, they jump to their deaths. Right. And everyone is shocked. Not everyone, of course, just the Anglo-American folk <laughs> that is shocked. They are shocked. They're shocked. Uh, but the harder people are like, mm, they're they're not really. They don't really care about what's. I mean, they care obviously, but they're not uh, sad about what's happening. Only time they're sad is that because the man is uh, suffering. He didn't die completely. He's suffering, and they're like they're wailing, they're crying with him as they will also do with Danny in, in near the end of the film, and the. As I said, Danny finds this dysfunctional family, this family that kind of uh, embraces her. I mean, if you look at the dance scene in the May Queen Festival, I mean, she's happy for the first time ever. She feels like she belongs somewhere. She belongs with people. And she's happy, she's dancing, and she's, you know, um, she's cared for, as Pele says uh, about Christian. He asks, do you feel held by him? Does he feel home to you? And that, I think those quotes are really important because uh, Danny doesn't feel any of it. And that's why uh, she just runs away again because she knows that this, this is the truth and she denies it once again. But in the end of the film, after you know she she sees Maya and Christian have sex, uh, she just starts wailing, and I think it's not just about uh, the death of. Uh, it's not just about the sex. She remembers the death of her parents, and she remembers what she lost. And that's really important, I think, uh, for the film, because this is the moment where denial is about to go away. And when they ask if she chooses one from the village or Christian to be sacrificed, she just goes Christian. She just chooses him to uh, go under that because she knows he's not family. He doesn't feel home to her. And at the end, I think there's just this crazy smile that everyone, uh, I think everyone reads it as she just went ballistic. Uh, yes, that may be true. She went ballistic because she lost her entire family, guys, remember? I mean, uh, but I think it's also a kind of happy smile because she now knows she will never be alone. She will have a family. She will have people that that make her feel held. And that's something, as Pele says, that's something we all deserve. That's something Danny also deserves. Yeah, it's definitely, I think it's hard to read 
an afterlife to that film because I think the point is her smile, as you say. Like it is just the fact that um, she accepts and and whatever happens after that, you know, we can argue, but I think that's <laughs> the point of the film, right? Now it's interesting because especially the, the really great thing about you choosing those bo both of those Ari Aster films is that there seems to be like a clear contrast between them as well. Yeah. Um, whereas Midsummer seems to fit, it, it seems to really bloom around Danny. I feel like Hereditary has a lot of different moving parts and I absolutely see why you used it for anger. It feels like anger is girding the entire film. But there's also a lot more going on, right? Um, there's the witches. There's, you know, the the <laughs> yeah. fact that uh, uh, what's the name of of the of the kid that dies? The girl? I forget her name. Uh, uh, Charlie. Charlie. Yeah, the, you know, Charlie doesn't die until I think like halfway through the film, you know, and then we're we have this first half of the film. So I guess can we talk or can you talk a little bit about how like how you feel all the other moving parts of hereditary not only feeds into anger, but also into grief. Like let, let's maybe like try to read it in its totality together. What would you say about it? The first scene, it starts with the, you know, the, there's a black screen and then we see letters and it's a eulogy. It's a kind of like, it's a kind of like, uh, that certificate was how can I how can how can I say this? Uh, yeah. Yes, kind of like that speech, but uh, it, it starts with someone obviously dying, yeah. and we then cut to the eulogy that uh, Annie is uh, speaking, and then we realize that Annie's mother is the one who died. Right. And we, we are expecting a normal eulogy, you know, a normal eulogy where, you know, the loved one talks uh, fondly of the deceased. And but what we get is a very angry and passive aggressive eulogy. And uh, that alone, that alone tells us that there's something wrong with this grief process because uh, if you if you're talking shit about your dead mother <laughs> at your funeral, there's something clearly wrong with your relationship to her. And then we learn, of course, uh, they go to the house, uh, the husband and any and go. Uh, they go home, and she says, "I I don't feel." sad like I feel numb I don't feel sad what, what should I feel and he just answers you should feel whatever you want to feel whatever you feel like and because you know you cannot put uh, you cannot make someone's grief grief happens on its own I mean and everybody's grief is different and everybody's grief is same at the same time it's, it's a very interesting thing our griefs resemble one another but they are also very unique in their uh, for example the the grief over uh, my grandmother is different for me and it's different for my brother is different for my mother of course it's different for my aunt it's different for everybody and uh, in this case 
you are kind of uh, you you kind of have an understanding that Eddie had a problem with her mother when she was alive. And we, of course, learned this through the entirety of the film that the mother was quite eccentric and occultist, uh, very, very, very interesting persona. And um, then we like move through the move through the film and we realize that Annie is an artist and she's a diorama artist and diorama is basically making miniature versions of real life situations or whatever she makes like doll houses and she's a really good artist and there's a event coming up for you know for her new art and she's stuck she kind of has an artist block and uh, she starts making uh, the final scene of her mother in in the hospital, and you're like, "This is so weird." Yeah. And for me, that's a classic memento mori. And memento mori is important in my dissertation as well. I talk about uh, I talk about it a lot. And uh, memento mori is something that reminds you that we are mortal. It's a reminder of mortality. And uh, in olden times, they would put skulls uh, on dinner tables. And how weird, but also how wicked. Uh, can you imagine someone just puts a, a skull in while you're eating? And you're like, that seems weird. And okay. Uh, but of course, uh, in this film, Memento Mori's are for me dioramas that she's making. She makes another diorama, which is even more weird. Uh, and it's just uh, that I think the breaking point is the death of Charlie. Because because that's the that's the moment. I mean, she was already. I mean, she didn't like her mother that much, so she wasn't. She was grieving, but she wasn't grieving as in you know. Uh, it wasn't really that much. She doesn't. She didn't feel anything really for her mother. But Charlie was a different case because she was the one who said that Charlie should go with her brother. And that was a very terrible call that she couldn't take back because because of that call, she uh, basically caused without you know without of course uh, not meaning to, she caused her daughter's demise. And what a demise! I mean, what a way to die, and what a way to find your daughter, you know, in the morning, uh, in the car without her head. I mean, it's it's just oh, it's such a brutal film, and of course she becomes angry at herself at first. She becomes angry, but of course she can't do anything to herself, so she has to find someone else to project that anger. And that person is, of course, the son. Uh, Peter was his name, I, I think. And uh, Peter is the, is the one that, that she sees as the culprit. And that dinner scene is very important because no one is speaking and no one is saying a word. And like out of nowhere, she just goes ballistic 
and he he just he just murmurs like he just murmurs like mom do you have something to say to me and she's like do you have something to say to me because you know you caused the death of your sister i mean he should have said something i mean he should have said something but she he also feels very guilty i mean you can see that he's shocked he's guilty and he feels all of that and he's also being haunted by something and uh, uh this guy has a lot of troubles uh, as it is so when she goes ballistic she goes i cannot forgive because you cannot accept what you did and that's really important because grief with grief uh, comes acceptance like if if the person that that is guilty can't accept that they're guilty in this case how can you how can you forgive them like it's yeah. impossible to forgive them because they're not they, they don't feel sorry they don't feel guilty and that that was really important and there are a lot of uh, things that are grief in the film as well there there is a support group i think it's really important uh, and it was important for my research as well she goes to a support group for survivors and uh, we learn that her father and her brother also killed themselves and that's just you like what this family i mean they can't catch a break like what's wrong and uh she she talks uh, then we realize why she's mad at her mother and then she talks a bit uh, but after that she she stops going to the meetings but she uh, basically meets this lady who uh who's into mediums and occult and stuff and she helps her she helps her in a way yes that's true uh, but uh, but of course there's a hidden agenda and spoiler alert if you haven't seen hereditary um this lady has a hidden agenda she's one of the uh, people who was in the cult with her mother and uh, basically uh, she, but she's also grieving because of a uh, daughter she lost uh, she lost someone and uh, she's also grieving there's a lot of grief going around in the house oh, yeah. the dead i mean the the dead we don't talk about him a lot yeah, played by gabriel Bryan, and uh, i think he plays such with such a nuance that uh, uh, you understand that he feels torn between peter and any but also he misses her uh, charlie and uh, tries to you know kind of uh, live through his grief but he can't catch a break because of any empty's ongoing uh, you know dynamic yeah. and uh, there's a lot of grief going on in the film but after you know afterwards i mean he dies she dies <laughs> peter becomes paymon and of course he dies too in a way 
And uh, this film tells us that basically uh, anger is not the way to go. And anger, you cannot hold on to your anger forever in grief. You have to kind of try to move on to the other stages and try to move on to acceptance. Because if you keep up with the anger, you're going to lose your head, as I also wrote in my dissertation. It's really important. Yeah, it's, it's quite poignant that she loses her head. Yeah, rage, rage and grief is so important for hereditary. It sets the entire tone. I mean, the film is also very dark, but there are scenes where it is red, and red is cinematographically very, uh, you know, uh, anger-like. Anger, when you think about red, you, you, your mind just goes, anger. Yeah. And uh, it is. Uh, there, there are a lot of scenes where red is used throughout the film, whereas, you know, whereas Mitsuma is in broad daylight, and there are, like, beautiful flowery clothes, beautiful, like, white uh, sheets, and everything is so nice and beautiful. But also, uh, under that beauty, there is decay and there is weird stuff going on. The Both of them are like fables in a way. And like uh, Midsummer, in a way, kind of gives like this toxic optimism. And uh, hereditary, as you say, is like a self-destruction. So um, so it, it, it's, it's really beautiful in that way. So... My next question, I was, I, I wanted to frame around Pet Cemetery, but really, I think this question goes for any of the films that you broke down as your thesis. And it's a question of like, you know, you, you make this really important point that a lot of horror scholarship hasn't focused on how grief is processed, um, even though death is central to the genre, right? Um, but then there's this mm -hmm. other, um, this other thread where horror is supposed to be the manifestation of anxieties, right? So that That's my true. question is, when we, when we then place your framework of like, these films are about how we face grieving, which I absolutely believe and I agree with, and I agree with your interpretation, then where do you think the anxiety is placed? Is the anxiety placed on the grief itself or is it placed on the process of the grief? Like, should I be anxious about the bargaining or are we actually critiquing the very state of grief here? Anxiety, I completely agree with you. Anxiety is of course very important in horror films and it's everywhere, you know, where when you're watching a horror film, you're anxious. Characters are anxious. Also, I have to say that horror films are very in touch with the zeitgeist, with the time of uh, spirit of the time, and they are basically a projection of the anxieties of the society at that time. And uh, now I'm talking about 21st century horror films here, and 21st century is a place full of anxiety. Yeah. Uh, it's and uh, I talk about uh, this in my introduction. Uh, the thing that I think set all of these films in motion is the public displays of mourning, such as 9/11 and the uh, and the funeral of Princess Diana in 1997. 
Because before that, as I said, Western Europe uh, liked to leave their grief in behind closed doors. Right. And after these events, because we watch people die on live television, I mean, how, how often does that happen? It was a very culturally, uh, like, it was culturally very important moment, vital moment for for the entirety of the planet. Because I was in Turkey, and I was, I think, I had just come from school, and I was watching the films, and be, like uh, just before my eyes, the towers they were being destroyed, and I was shocked to the core. And I was in middle school or something like that, but I remember that I didn't go to the school after. Uh, after the news because it was the lunch break and after that I didn't go to school because I was we were all shocked we didn't know what to do with what we saw and of course we were face to face with death and that was really important and Princess Diana also died before our eyes we saw that car crash all of us saw that car crash and these triggered public display of grief and people started to mourn on streets they started to hold vigils on the streets and that was really important and Rollins, uh, Rollins the horror scholar he asks in his book that uh, if if anything will happen after the events of the 9-11 you know horror rise and I think this was the manifestation of it in in horror, uh, true horror fashion, uh, it's sometimes it once again uh, brought on our screen something very cultural and something very now, and uh, we were all grieving. We were all trying to, you know, uh, kind of come to come to terms with our grief and loss. And horror films were like, stop. Okay, I have a way. I have a way to help you. And uh, I think these films, you know, bargaining and anger, depression and denial, and lastly, of course, acceptance, these are all about, uh, you know, our anxieties in the modern world that something terrible might just be around the corner. I mean, look at the pandemic, look at COVID-19. I mean, uh, my family lost five people to COVID and uh, a lot of uh, my friends lost a lot of family to COVID. And uh, it's really a kind of, I think we will see more films about grief. I mean, recent films such as The Night House. I don't know if you guys heard of it, but... I, I you, you watched it, right? It's, it's about another film about grief. And then I now, I, I feel like it's kind of like deformity, uh, occupational hazard, that I'm now looking at horror films and all I see is grief. I cannot accept the fact that, uh, you know, like all of these are about grief, guys. Come on. Uh, and yes, they are. They are about grief because... Uh, they're showing their kind of manifestations of our anxieties. And our anxiety right now is about death and how close we are. We are just a breath away from dying from a pandemic. So it's really important that 
this anxiety, I think, will continue being projected onto the big screen. And uh, we will see a lot more films about grief uh, in the near future. I'm, re- I'm very sure about this. Yeah, it definitely seems. Um, well, you know, also with the success of films like Midsummer, like Hereditary, yeah. um, you know, t- that tend to be more cerebral, I guess, in their presentation. Um, so I-, I think you're absolutely right. I think, and and as you say, our current moment, it's hard not to, it's hard not, I mean, we always talk about how cultural production reflects, you know, societal uh the societal moment so it's um only a matter of time now what's interesting is you're absolutely right in the sense that most of your films i mean all of them were made in anglo anglo context um they were made in the 21st century but one of them is a period piece and it's really interesting with the women in black um because again like with all of your chapters, I see the argument clearly, but especially with the woman in black, I think it may be the only one where I'm like, can this argument then be lifted for other period horror pieces? And I'll tell you what I was thinking of. Um, I, I, your chapter reminded me of uh, Hill House, all of the interpretations of Hill House and how um, you know yeah. that legend in and of itself is like about this haunting of of uh, and and in in the case that you argue it, it it can be read as a depression so do you mind talking a little bit about that sort of about like this uh I think you said like it's an Edwardian era but like just generally like how do you think about this idea of grief as depression in period horror it's set in Edwardian times but it was written in 1983 and oh. shot in the 21st century. So it's really, you would think that it's a Gothic novel, right? But it's, yeah. it's actually written in, uh, it's written in the 20th century, which is very interesting. I thought it was a, a Gothic novel at first, but then I realized that, oh, this is from 83, come on. It was like five years before I was born. And uh, it's really interesting. It's a fascinating piece uh, because why, why, this entire town called Critton Gifford is depressed. They are yeah. depressed because their children are dying horribly. Yeah. And literally, they are literally dying and they don't, they know how, but they don't really know how. Like <laughs> yeah. they, they know that this ghost, uh, whenever someone sees this ghost, a child will be taken. But they don't know how this, like, who is this, like, what's going on? Who is this ghost? Like, what's going on in this uh, town? And then Arthur, as I said before, Arthur has dreams about his dead wife all the time, throughout the entirety of the film. Uh, he has dreams, and we understand that he's uh, he hasn't been himself after the demise uh, of his wife during childbirth of all of the things that he she could die from she died at childbirth and that's really important i think and uh she dies and uh he has dreams and then there is this child that is left behind 
a child without a mother and chi a child with a depressed father. Uh, basically, he's he's like he's painting something, and Arthur asks, like, why am I sad? Like, why did you paint me sad? And he just goes, the son just goes, because that's your face always looks like. Yeah. And <laughs> And I just, I don't know if I should laugh or cry for this kid and this man who is clearly, uh, clinically depressed. And uh, then he goes to work and we kind of get an understanding of what he's really like. Because his boss is a terrible man, apparently. And he just says that if your performance doesn't go up, I will fire you. And he just like goes after the death of your wife, you just stop working and you just like not. Yeah, it's called grief, man. I mean, uh, it happens, you know, it happens to people, if, if, especially if you're not getting therapy and if you're not getting help for uh, this very tragic loss. And of course, it wasn't the thing in Edwardian era. You wouldn't go to, you know, doctors and psychotherapists uh, for the, anything that happens to you. But um, you clearly see that this man is not well, well, well. And then he goes to Creighton Gifford and he comes face to face with a townsfolk who doesn't want him to be there like he's like why like he doesn't understand uh, and but whenever he mentions the eel marsh house everyone is like eel marsh house of course i'm cleaning i have glass right here eel marsh house you shouldn't go there and everyone is like very cryptic and being mysterious and shit and just say so i mean just say that there's something wrong with the house why are you giving this man a hard time for being there he doesn't he doesn't really want to be there and um of course there's only one ally sam bailey sam bailey lost uh, his son to this tragic uh, event as well uh, he drowned uh, and his wife elizabeth clearly is depressed and uh, just you see her uh, just pushing a very empty cradle and you're like Are, is she okay <laughs> is she seem okay i think she should see a doctor or two and uh but their entire house is like a shrine to their dead son and uh, that's like the entire film, the eel marsh, the decay, and the, you know, the mise-en-scene, the black clothes, Arthur wears black, the woman in black, obviously, wears black, everyone wears black because it's a town in mourning, and everything about this film screams death, destruction, decay, and grief and depression. You are depressed watching the film. There is mist all over the place. I mean, he said there is, a, of course, um, a kind of like marsh uh, around the house. And uh, it's just, uh, everything is like mud. There is mud all over the place. And everything about it screams depressed. And everything about it also screams Gothic. And Gothic is 
very important uh, if if i if i have time i would like to mention a little bit about gothic and how it it, it plays into our hands and uh, very studies for example like date the beginning of horror to gothic literature james twitchell states that you know modern works of art artificial horror originated in the late 18th century discovery that by inducing extreme feelings of dreadful pleasures both print and illustration could arouse and exploit powerful feelings deep within the human spirit. And many scholars believe that the Gothic novel was born out of the Enlightenment repression. As feelings were replaced by reason in Western Europe, the creative passion found a way out in the form of romanticism. And so the Gothic novel, as I say, was alive. And uh, that becomes a Freudian uncanny in the Gothic, you know, both familiar and unfamiliar. Haunted homes, you know, like Ilmarsh House, grieving families like the Creeping Gifford uh, people, uh, along with the otherworldly spirits, take center stage. And Joseph and Tucker argue that the Victorian age is in mourning for lost pictures in the world and of the spirit which the acceleration of a coveted yet feared modernity had swept away. And, you know, even Queen Victoria herself is known for her very public grief in the aftermath of her husband, Prince Albert's death. And Victorian age, the uh, obsession with morbidity, decay, death and mourning, both the culture and the works of art. As I mentioned before, Elizabeth Bronfen, talks about death by proxy, which is something like we experience death through, you know, someone else and through at a safe distance. I think you can see that clearly in The Woman in Black. The Woman in Black shows you many deaths just as you think that Arthur will be safe with his son Joseph. They die. <laughs> and you're like, so frustrating. no, 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 that can't happen. They have to be happy. But, but this is different in the play. In the play, Arthur doesn't die. Oh. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's very interesting that they changed it for my benefit, <laughs> for my benefit, because that shows that uh, Arthur is also suffering from survivor's guilt because he now lives the life that his wife will never be able to experience. Mm. And he feels guilty because he's the one who's, who's there and she's not there anymore. So just as, uh, just as uh, he helps uh, Jenny uh, find uh, her son, we think that everything will be fine and they'll go home, but no. Jenny says no, because grief will never go away. It will never leave you and it will take you to your grave, literally in this uh, case. And, uh, but, but at last we see, you know, uh, three of them, you know, mother, child and father, going happily into the white lights and maybe it's a kind of happy ending who knows <laughs> the really interesting part about choosing the babadook for acceptance which by the way i think as you say it's like really obvious the same way that midsummer is really obvious about denial um is the fact that the babadook has also sort of been like 
repurposed as this joyful thing you know obviously with the lgbt <laughs> community uh you know we, we love making everything gay but i mean it, it, there's also that opening in the film itself with acceptance because you know acceptance yeah. does you know at, both in your thesis but also in the framework overall mm -hmm. it's the final step like okay this is it with the grief and earlier when you were talking about how we deal with grief um i just heard this i think it was a quote from frank ocean where he said mm -hmm. that uh grief is the love that we don't get to express in reality and i think um to sort mm -hmm. of begin to tie all of this together do you think that acceptance especially as it's portrayed in horror does lead to a certain joy or do you think that is something we put onto grief to make it more palatable do you mind sort of uh, extricating this a bit i think it's not the former but the latter death let's talk about death a little bit i mean that is the one thing along with birth that we will all experience if you're not vampires i mean if you, if you're vampires it's cool if you're zombies it's cool but apart from that uh, birth and death are the only two things that it is certain that we we will all go through right. and both causes joy in most cases but it's different i mean it's it's the same natural phenomena i mean you you're born you you come to this world and then you leave this world which is very natural i mean if you for example go to someone's house as a guest you come and they are like happy and then you leave which is like you won't you can't stay there forever at, at one point they will be like maybe you should go <laughs> i mean it's, it's at one point that will happen and that is i think a very natural thing and we somehow i think i don't know when maybe with enlightenment maybe before that we uh, sort of because the ancient burial rituals and ancient mourning periods were more accepted of like uh, uh, of death and they uh, they didn't really uh, think too much about the death after they die and but this is not the same in our modern world we care a lot we are scared anxious about dying a lot we are scared about our loved ones dying because then we will be alone and uh it is a some kind of like it's that is kind kind of pushed aside out of the home out of the domestic area area you know that i talk a little bit in my dissertation about funeral homes i mean before then everything happened in your house mm -hmm. but then after the enlightenment it started to you know go away to funeral homes where you can't see the dead where you can only see them after their makeup you know after they're you know dollied up and this is this is really interesting that we have to do makeup to that people and uh, they're dead. I mean, let's accept this fact. They're dead and gone. You cannot make them like look lively. There's no life in that person anymore. And 
uh, are in grief, and that is very unacceptable for people, general people. We want to avoid it as much as we can, as fast as we can, and but we can't do that. It's not possible. We have to accept it. I mean, just as, as I said before, just as we uh, accept that a baby is born, we should accept, we have to learn to accept that people will also die. And horror films, I think, help us do that. Horror films, uh, especially horror films about grief, uh, show us that uh, you can accept. It's okay to accept. It's okay to say that that person is gone and they leave forever. Burial rituals and other rituals, they're rooted in the myths. And myths create meaning. And if there is meaning in something, it's easier to accept. And horror films about death, I think, do that. They create meaning to grief and death. And if we found, find the meaning, it will be easier for us to accept that we cannot, we cannot run from that. We cannot escape that. And we cannot also escape the death of our loved ones. They will die at one point. And acceptance is really important. And in Babadook, uh, acceptance is the final stage. And Amelia doesn't celebrate the birthday of her son, Sam, because that's the same day that the father was you know, killed in a car crash, Oscar. And, um, but after, like, before the ending of the film, we see that they celebrate the birthday on the actual date. And that's a very joyful thing. That's a happy thing. Because that shows us that they are coming to, coming, uh, coming to terms with, you know, grief. They are coming to terms with death. And that's really important. And we should all, I mean, let, I'm not saying let's all be happy about that. That's not, that's crazy. I mean, we cannot do that. And that, that wouldn't be healthy as well. That wouldn't be sane. But what I'm saying that uh, we should accept it. We should accept and try to move on as much as we can. That's the only way to go forward. And horror films, thankfully, help us do that. What I would like to ask you is, you know, you wrote this great dissertation and, you know, it had, Thank a, you. you sort of like already addressed this a little bit, but I'm going to ask it more directly. So you wrote it and it's beautiful. Is there any, any questions you have left over after you finished it or questions that you have in the modern day today that you would like to address or see others explore? Yeah, and thankfully, a couple of publishing houses are interested in the dissertation. That's so awesome. you might, yeah. yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. I think I would write more, finish all my questions. As, as you ask, I have, I still have questions. I still watch films and I'm like, oh, that should have been in the dissertation. <laughs> and I want to add them to my list of the list of the films. I will put all of them to the books that I'm writing. I started writing a bit and try to expand this thing, the idea that I started in the dissertation. There is one thing, of course, I talk a little bit about COVID because it was the beginning of COVID when I wrote the dissertation. Yeah. And now we are still, uh, in this in this mode in this COVID mode and then the and it's and it's 
still sounds like and looks like it will never go away. Yeah. So uh, I think I would uh, talk a lot about a lot more about uh, the pandemic as well in my dissertation because I think it's very important and because it feeds into our anxieties, as you said, and yeah. horror, horror takes the anxiety of the society right away. It's never out of step. It always catches up with the, with the times. And, and that's why I love horror. I would like to talk more about the pandemic in my dissertation and I will in the book, <laughs> hopefully. Awesome. Well, I can't wait for that to come out. You have to keep us updated. Thank you. Um, of course. This, the, I, my ending note probably is when I went to Final Girls Film Fest in Berlin, there was this film, um, You Are Not My Mother by Kate Borland. Probably got her last name wrong. But um, okay. when I was watching this film, I thought of your dissertation. So if you haven't seen it yet. No, no, I haven't seen it. Please, I, I think like it's doing the festival rounds right now, but it was one of those films where I was like, I don't think uh, I've seen grief dealt with this way. And probably because the death was almost metaphorical. And I don't think that's a spoiler. I think that's like in the trailer. Um, and, and yeah, I just like, it, it really makes us think like, how, how do we even define grief? Right. And I think uh, it's yeah. so exciting that, that you're taking on this. I think it's an important thing to discuss in horror studies. And I'm so stoked that you came on the podcast to talk about it. Cause I think it's really, I'm very happy. I am very happy uh, to be invited. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you're a really great host. And uh, it was because uh, that and, you know, that dying and grief, these are not really, you know, bright subjects that you want to talk about every day. In great company, it, it, it's easier to talk about this stuff. No, but they're, part, they're dark. I know, yeah. I know, but it's important that we talk about them because no, it's, it's part important. of life as well. It totally yeah. is important. As someone like, I think I have death spirals every day. I think that a conversation yeah. like this actually really helps me. So thank you so much. Thank um, you so much for having me.